this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This is the Book Riot Podcast. It's a news talk show about books and reading. Uh, today is, boy, I don't know, uh, April 16th, 2020. <laughs> We're going to talk about things related to, to books and reading. Rebecca, um, welcome back. Thank you. Here we are. Uh, got some nice feedback about the deals episode. Oh, good. That went live. So it was really uh, fun. Great to see that. Um, calls to do it more often. I think people liked, especially when um, a I give you, I teed you up, and also when I embarrassed myself by being uh, interested in Iceland, Iceland's <laughs> most famous sweater. Embarrassed though, I'm not sure. Think if you were Iceland's second most famous sweater. <laughs> what a, what a. What a kick to the cardigan that would be. The fourth most famous. <laughs> the fourth most important crime writer in Iceland. The fourth most important sweater in Iceland. Iceland has enough crime writers, man. Being the fourth they most do. important would not they actually really be do. that bad. What's more famous? The eighth most famous Icelandic crime writer or the first most famous sweater? Like how far are the crime writers do you have to get down before someone knows? This <laughs> you have to go through a lot of crime writers before you're anywhere you near, I think, the level of obscurity that even the most famous Icelandic sweater has what achieved. What do you think the most famous American sweater is? What's what, what the, the cardigan? Is that a is that a US thing? Like did Mr. Rogers invent the cardigan? Oh. I don't actually know. Wait, are we talking about just like a sweater style or an actual singular sweater? I'll take either. Mm. We're now in five weeks of being in the house. I'm interested in everything. We're this going all the way down. This is a podcast about knitwear. <laughs> the most famous single sweater. That's a great question. I would... Mr. I, Rogers has to be top five. Yeah, I, I would think. stand for the Mr. Rogers cardigan. I think five years ago, we would have been talking mm. about Bill Cosby sweaters. It's a great one. Yep. Now we do not talk about now those. Now we do not talk about those. Who else had a famous... Are there even five famous, famous sweaters? sweaters? Even five famous sweaters. Well, I feel like the, maybe not individual, but like the 50s high school girl sweater that was real tight is a famous sweater. Mm, you know, like, that kind? Uh-huh. Yeah, like the twin set situation. What's that? What's that? Like those like those um, Northeastern cable knit, like Ernest Hemingway, real thick braided sweaters? What oh, are those things? those are like... Um, what are those called? Those are like fishermen yeah. sweaters. Yeah. Very good sweater. Those, that um, is a good sweater. Chandler sweater vest from '90s Friends <laughs> oh, is a good sweater. sweater vest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, trying to think of other famous sweaters. Doesn't Robert Langdon? I mean, the ugly Christmas sweater. The ugly Christmas sweater might be the top number one power rank as a concept. Like, yes, sweater mm-hmm. category right now. Right now. Um, anyway, if you've got ideas <laughs> of uh, the most famous <laughs> pop culture historical sweaters. Well, did to FDR, I think, wore a sweater by the in the fireside chats. The, that was an important. Sweater. Well, that sounds nice and cozy. It does. It does. When you're talking about war with polio, um, you wear a sweater by a fireside yeah. and mm-hmm. just try to make people feel better about things. And you, you get to sit down. Um, so if you've got candidates for the most <laughs> important, most recognizable, I'm sure this is completely spontaneously. 
um, generated. I, I know people are going to be shocked to hear that this wasn't uh, thoroughly vetted and researched. Um, but uh, there we go, podcast at bookriot.com. I feel like listeners will know we're in a really bad place when the thing we do is plan to have a five-minute discussion about sweaters. Yeah. This is only a warning sign. This isn't actually the disease right here. Um, let's do a sponsor break and see if we can recover at all from whatever this has become. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books for Young Adults. From number one New York Times bestselling author Jennifer L. Armentrout comes a book I have to tell you about. It's Half-Blood, and it follows Alex and her mom who have spent years on the run from The Covenant, a school where their pure descendants of gods hone their powers and half-mortal teens train to kill demons for them. When her mom is murdered, Alex has two options. She can become a servant for the pures or work twice as hard to catch up in her training. The second option seems easier, but it gets a little complicated, you see, when pureblood Aiden becomes her personal trainer. So falling for Aiden isn't her biggest problem, surprisingly. As demons close in, she must fight to stay alive, even while others around her are dropping dead. So again, Jennifer L. Armentrout does the thing when it comes to romance, fantasy, adventure, all those things. Other books are Blood and Ash, A Shadow and Ember, all those good things. Make sure to check out Half-Blood by Jennifer L. Armentrout. And thanks again to Bloom Books for Young Adults for sponsoring this episode. This episode is sponsored by Underlined, publishers of The Night in Question by Kathleen Glasgow and Liz Lawson. If you know me, you know I'm a huge Agatha Christie fan. I've been reading her since I was an actual child and reread her at least a few times every year. So I'm so excited that this sequel is out because it's reminding me about the original that I've been meaning to read for quite some time. And now I can read both back to back. So how do you solve a murder? You follow the lessons of the master, of course, Agatha Christie. Iris and Alice find themselves in the middle of another Castle Cove mystery in this sequel to the New York Times bestseller, The Agathas. This time, to understand the lies of the present, the Agathas will need to look to the mysteries of the past. The Night in Question is available now wherever books and audiobooks are sold. That audiobook I have my eye on, and it's narrated by Mayor Dudeja, Sophie Amos, and Holly Linneman. Thank you once again to Underlined and The Night in Question by Kathleen Glasgow and Liz Lawson for sponsoring today's show. Uh, I guess housekeeping stuff first. Um, we're going to take the bonus, ep- the midweek episodes off for a couple weeks. Um, we've got some holes in our sponsor calendar. We're feeling just in little in general fatigued. Um, and some of the stuff we were going to do over this time hasn't materialized on the schedule. We thought it would. And so I guess we talked about the Pulitzer Prize, I think was supposed to be next week's mm-hmm. midweek episode, but it's been delayed. Um, they say that's going to be announced May 4th. So we're going to record something on May 4th or 5th so for May 6th. So that's in um, you know, a couple of weeks. We're going to do the next midweek episode. And then after that, we'll continue for a few weeks of doing a, um, a second show a week. We'll continue with these new shows, these talk shows, whatever, the, you know, this hot sweater content that you've been coming <laughs> uh, to expect now for you know, four or five minutes. Um, but then May 13th, that episode will be our next Book Nerd Movie Club selection. And it was. And it was from the very sort of first wave of votes a fait accompli, that it will be Fried Green Tomatoes. Um, Fanny Flagg's novel and screenplay turned into, I've got to say, based on the reactions, a more beloved than I was expecting movie. Mm-hmm. Um, Rebecca, do you want to tell the people what our guess was for what people would vote for? 
Do you remember what we said our guess was? I think we thought our guess was... My guesses, I remember, were Field of Dreams or Devil Wears Prada. Yeah, I think we said Regression to the Mean was Devil Wears Prada because we thought it was probably the most recently popular movie, mm-hmm. so just more people have seen it. And then after that, we may have let our own affinity get in the way of thinking Field of Dreams yeah, maybe. Uh, was close. Um, well, and we did... We, green Tomatoes. Go ahead. Yeah, we did ultimately knock out The English Patient and yeah. Remains of the Day because serious content is not the thing yeah. anybody seems to want right now, us included, mm-hmm. so... It sounds like people would like to hear us talk about all of them at some point. There wasn't a lot of, oh my God, please don't do X. Mm. Um, so that's well, interesting as well. Though Remains of the Day was the second place uh, vote Interesting. Getter. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, we'll definitely do Field of Dreams this summer. Yeah. You can't stop it. You no. Stop it. It's going to happen. And if I think if listeners have ideas for mm-hmm. other kind of bonus episode things that we haven't done yet, I would love to hear that. One of the reasons that we're taking a couple of weeks off is that some of the stuff we had planned, in addition to being like the Pulitzer, which was delayed, were like mm-hmm. very reading heavy yeah. pe- uh, content pieces, like stuff that we would have had to read two books for and have ideas about um, in order to do the show. And that's just not happening right now. No. The only thing that I'm doing is reading E.B. White's essays from 1940. So Right. I think... Yeah, one, so a couple of the recent ones we've done are like the big book of 2020 or big book of the year, like we did the Such and Fun Age one, but because publishing has been so weird and fragmented, like there hasn't been a next big book of the year. I I don't think I could be challenged about that and be wrong. And then we do these 20 years in the past ones and just, we've got good candidates, you know, we got white teeth, we got some other things that we'd like to do at some point, but... um. It's feeling like a real slog to, to, to gear up for that. Yeah, well, I think at one point I texted you, like, proposal to do a show on When Harry Met Sally, even though it's not based on a book, <laughs> just because it would be fun. Get your own podcast if you're going to be the content um, police about what we can and can't talk about here. Um, so anyway, that's what's coming up. Fry Green Tomatoes, uh, a reader, um, I say reader still, from the days before I even knew the podcast, a listener wrote in to say that it currently was available on Netflix. I have not confirmed that the movie's available on Netflix. So, but um, go check that for, out first um, before you, if you were going to spring for a rental or something else like that. Also, was told that um, Fanny Flag has a new Whistle Stop book coming out in the fall. Fry, oh, the original title, the title of the book is Fried Green Tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe. Um, and that, you know, as we said, the, the um, title was clipped off for the movie. And I don't know if any of her other books are in the Whistle Stop universe, but. Whatever time it was, um, Fanny Flag is ready to return um, to to the the land of whistle stops. So fortuitous timing to be talking the about this year. Universe. I just checked Netflix, and Fried Green Tomatoes is not streaming. Oh, oh well, maybe we turned the leaf over. Or something. Yeah, maybe, maybe a we did jurisdiction or something else. But like Netflix has recommended that maybe instead I would like Driving Miss Daisy, My Girl, or The First Wives Club, and. Yes. Yeah, I, I was thinking about this too. Um, in my brain, fried green tomatoes and steel magnolias are in like the same bucket. Absolutely. And they came around around mm-hmm. the same time. And yeah, beaches, but it wasn't Southern, right? We're both fried no, green tomatoes true. and steel yeah. magnolias Southern. But uh, yeah, sure. Um, I, in my memory, steel magnolias is better, but I may have just had more affinity for it or something else. But like, I'll be curious to see how it stacks up in my mind versus Steel Magnolias, which is based on a play, mm-hmm. um, not a book. So I guess it's sort of plays are, are they, adapting a play to a movie doesn't feel the same as adapting a novel. I don't know. But they feel they're very written, I guess is what I'm saying. Yes. They're very languagey. They're very written. 
um, kinds of, of books. Um, I guess fried green tomato ultimately has more teeth to it for reasons that will be obvious <laughs> once you get into it. No spoilers. Um, but st- I guess fried green tomatoes didn't have a, you know, didn't have young Julia Roberts in the starring role. Like right. it didn't and- turn anyone. Kathy Bates became a reliable character actor. So I don't know, maybe some of the actor stuff has yeah, overshadowed I mean, Fried Green Tomatoes. The cast of Steel Magnolias is just impossible yeah. to beat. You know, right. Dolly Parton, young Julia Roberts. What is her name who played Forrest Gump's mom? Oh, Rob uh, Forrest Gump's mom. I'm Sally? sorry, uh, Shirley. Uh, Shirley. Oh, it does have Shirley MacLaine. But, but Shirley MacLaine, yes. But Sally something... <laughs> Oh, Sally Field. Yes, I'm sorry, I'm getting them all mixed up. Sally Field. I'm like, Rob, Forrest Gump's mom, that's Robin Wright. No, that was Forrest Gump's <laughs> lover, which is really different. Uh, different yes, movie. Yes, but Shirley MacLaine as Weezer. Weezer. I know. Yeah. Shirley MacLaine, now we're way down. Yes. That's Olympia yeah, no, no. Dukakis was Weezer, right? Weezer? No, 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 no. Olympia Dukakis calls Shirley MacLaine Weezer. Right, okay. Because Tom Scarrett, when one of yes. the great, now we're doing a Steel Magnolias <laughs> podcast, apparently. I'm with into the, that. The, the Tom Scarrett uh, Shirley MacLaine rivalry in Steel Magnolia is one of my favorite sort of benign hatreds it's so in good. all of movies. It's so great. We could totally um, justify a Steel Magnolia's book nerd movie hour based on it having been a play. Also, we don't need to. We can That's do whatever true. we want here. This is our show. It's our show. <laughs> By week like 12 of quarantine, it's just a weekly podcast about what we watched on Netflix that yeah. week. Sweaters and Tom Skerritt movies. <laughs> Audience. <laughs> Two. White picket sweaters. <laughs> um, anyway, well, anyway. Where are we? we're we're going to abrogate our our adaptation um, non constraint. Apparently, <laughs> our our adaptation guideline suggestion because we will do Dead Poet Society. Absolutely, and you've got mail at some point. Like we have to do those. They're not technically well. They're not adaptations. I guess some people say. You've got Males adaptation of 84 Charing Cross Road, which is an adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, blah, blah, blah. Mm. But we're mostly we're saying they're related to books somehow, and sometimes maybe they won't be um, at all. So anyway, Fried Green Tomatoes, May 13th. We're feeling a little loopy, but I'm looking forward to talking with that. Are we going to have anyone else join us, or is that the two of us? We haven't talked about this at all. Oh, I think it's just us. Just us, yeah. Though we, we have Southerners. Amanda's take on fried green tomatoes was probably oh, interesting, but maybe well, I'm she, maybe totally we'll, willing she, to draft her into that. <laughs> yeah, we could ask her if she's interested because I feel like she would have a good perspective on the particular um, deployment of Southern femininity and its mm. alternates that are represented in fried green tomatoes. Have you ever? What do you, what's your opinion on the actual food matter? Fried green tomatoes. Oh, I love a fried green tomato. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I like them too. I saw fried green tomato flavored potato chips at the store the other day. Interesting. And I wondered if that would be good. Um, and I stopped there because I couldn't see through my fogged up glasses because I was wearing a mask. <laughs> and that's how we live in the world now. All right. Yeah, well, know. let's see. There's all that. Um, I also welcome other ideas for adaptations that we should talk about. It's one of those things, there's so many that I forget that. X movies and adaptation. Mm-hmm. Um, so anything like that. We got a good note that I thought about too for um, the the James Ivory adaptation of Morris by E.M. Forster starring a pre-Four Weddings and a Funeral, Hugh Grant. Oh, interesting. Um, as a floppy-haired, um, closeted, uncloseted, back and forth gay man um, in, I don't think it's Victorian. I think it's 
Georgian? I can't remember exactly. But it's a costume drama, and it's really beautiful and great, and an underrated Forrester, Ivory, and Hugh Grant joint. Um, so that would be really good to do at some point, too. But I'd forgotten about that one until someone mentioned it. Oh, yeah. I feel like well, we should do The Taming of the Shrew and 10 Things I Hate About You. That's a point. good one. That's a really good one. Well, and Get then our... there's Clueless, right? Which is, right, which uh, is Emma. Uh, Emma, right, which is also... Which good. I've so, never read. There, there's, I guess there's not a shortage of um, candidates, is what we're saying. And it's hard to know. Maybe maybe we'll do one one for them, one for us. We'll pick one, and then mm. we can vote. We can kind of go that sure. way for a while. Might be interesting. Here we go. All right. Um, I feel like <laughs> maybe we should take another sponsor break. <laughs> seems how, good. How many sponsor breaks? It's like hitting the reset on the video game when you failed. Like, how many times can I do this and not feel like I'm just cheating? But we're going to cheat for another minute and then come back. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Diana Dixon has a busy summer and no time for tall, gorgeous hockey player Shane's shenanigans. Because you know what? If they shenan once, they'll shenan again. So she thinks she knows exactly who he is when he moves into her apartment building. But turns out Shane's sick of hookups and tired of being on the rebound after his long-term girlfriend called it quits. But when his ex comes back into the picture, he needs a plan. And who better to play his new girlfriend than his sassy new neighbor? So a fake relationship might be perfect for Diana's own ex issues, but Diana is used to living by the rules. Will she learn that when it comes to love, rules are meant to be broken? Make sure to check out The Dixon Rule by L. Kennedy. L. Kennedy is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with over a million copies of her books sold. So this is going to be another banger, y'all. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds. College student Blake and her girlfriend have one goal, join the exclusive sorority that promises connections to a network of trailblazing women of color. Now, Ella's acceptance is a sure thing. She's a daughter of a Serena Society alum. After all, Blake, on the other hand, lacks Ella's pedigree and her confidence. Luckily, though really unluckily, she finds courage at the bottom of a liquor bottle. When she drinks, she's bold and funny, and as pledging intensifies, so does Blake's drinking. Ella assures her that she's fine, partying hard is what it takes, but with her future on the line, Blake must decide how far she's willing to go to achieve glittering dreams of success. Now, just so you know, Jazz Hammonds is the 2023 winner of the critic Scott King John Steptoe Award for New Talent for We Deserve Monuments, and We Deserve Monuments was an Amazon Best Books of the Year and Barnes & Noble Best Books of the Year for 2023, so suffice to say, y'all should check this new one out. Thanks again to Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds for sponsoring this episode. Okay, I'm ready now. I took a three-hour walk in that little break. I yeah. shook it off. Mm-hmm. You know, did we some got some wiggles? Jacks. It's good. Yeah. Print sales. We're, we're checking vital stats, I guess, mm-hmm. kind of for for books and reading. Um, and surprising me, I guess. Yeah, I was surprised to see this number. Weren't you? Yeah, I was. Tell the people the number. Print unit sales rose 13.7% in the week that ended April 11th, over the previous week. Over and the previous week? Yes. Not over year over year, over the previous week. Yeah. I don't know what's going on there other than the sales being up 
is due to four categories. Juvenile fiction rose 26.2%. Unbelievable. Led by, wait for it, a 38.3% jump in the animals category. And also a 31.9% gain in the holidays, festivals, and religion segment. So I think what we were seeing there was... Uh Easter Bunny books? Easter Bunny, kids Uh Passover books... Um, just generally people buying books for their kids about animals because kids like animals. Uh, Juvenile nonfiction category had a 15.9% increase Mm. and a 62% jump in Mm. sales in the holidays, festivals. Yeah, so we were seeing, I think, books given as gifts around the multiple religious celebrations that happened. Also, adult nonfiction sales increased 6.8%, driven by a 93% jump in sales in the cooking and entertainment <laughs> segment. I would wager that like approximately 98% of that 93% jump is people buying Alice and Roman cookbooks, mm. if the internet has anything to say about it. Uh, but also Magnolia Table Volume 2 by Joanna Gaines came out last week and sold 130,000 copies in its first week on sale. My first Learn to Write workbook by Crystal Radke sold 40,000 copies last week. What a windfall for Crystal Radke. No kidding. I mean, it's like uh, right place, right time to have that book up. Um, Also, Little Fires Everywhere, um, 34,000 print copies last week. You'd have to assume because of the adaptation Mm -hmm. that's out, though it's sold consistently well in paperback for for years. Like it's often flirts with the bottom of the top 20 for paperbacks, um, even though it's been out for several years. But that's a really, probably would make it, I'm sure it made it the um, top selling print paperback fiction title. Publishers Weekly, the print version I get that I subscribe to used to give you the unit volume. Oh, interesting. um, And they took that away Hmm. of late, which I do not like, though... They don't want jerks like me talking about it on a podcast that other people aren't paying for. I get. I don't know. Who know? I don't know why they did that. But like, the relative scale of difference between spots on the list always was interesting to me. But um, having done enough now, I guess I don't know. Does Easter usually represent a significant jump in book sales? Like, is this on par with what mm. twenty nineteen, the week before Easter, versus the two weeks before Easter? I don't um, know. Would have looked like juvenile fiction. I guess is. Um, also, juvenile nonfiction continued to increase 15.9% uh, week over week. I thought there would be more of a flattening there as people got their materials for doing stuff at home, but it sounds like it only continues um, to grow. Fascinating yeah. to see what's going to continue to be. I mean, when you're in uncharted waters, sometimes waters are better than you think, right? That's the nature of being uncharted. I don't yeah, think. I wonder, too, if some of it was folks who you know were finishing up their third or fourth or fifth week of being at home and they had stocked up on books for what they thought would be you know Uh, like a one month situation and now it's going to be longer so like let's do another stock mm, up i did that last week so this is like you know my idiosyncratic anecdote (laughs) it's like it's like your next run to the grocery store Um, exactly like oh well mm. i gotta call the bookstore again (laughs) yeah uh and and not so great news for print though this does not seem to be covid19 Related necessarily, um, LSC Communications, which is the largest book printer in the U.S., um, is gearing up. Well, I guess has cha- filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. This is not one of those we're closing up shop and liquidating bankruptcy. It's one of those sort of functional turnaround kind of bankruptcy. So they're going to continue working. I guess they they tried to do a merger 
that fell apart. You know, things are bad for print, I guess. It's hard to know. What, what, what did you take out of the story that they were filing for bankruptcy? Is this just a badly run business? Is it a badly run sector? Bad place to be in? Like, wh- what can yeah. I understand about, as a general reader, how much, if at all, should I care about this? Ooh, that's a good question. I Well, I think that the... I read this as the cause of it being more associated with like the business has been struggling and they had this failed merger, which is never good no. for business yeah. in general. Um, and that deal was called off last summer. So there have been problems for a while. But in 2019, the revenue was down 15%. The book group fell 4% in that year. And so I think... This is going to be interesting. Like, since they're going to continue to work some, mm-hmm. I think we'll feel the impact potentially in books. But one thing I was musing out loud about on our company Slack was like, well, what percentage of books published in the U.S. are actually yeah. printed in the U.S.? And I don't know the right. answer to that. I do know that a lot of them are printed overseas, especially in China, and that getting books from China has been a problem during mm-hmm. COVID-19. Uh Having, you know, that part of the supply chain interrupted is certainly a challenge. I don't know what this is going to be because we don't know, like, how much U.S. publishers actually rely on this. Like, you can still be the biggest. It could be the biggest book printer, but still not big. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, right. And without that information, it's hard to guess. So I think the worst case scenario is like, oh, publishers are screwed because they can't get as many books Mm -hmm. as they need printed by this and that that interrupts a lot of other elements of the book world, it might not have much impact at all. Mm-hmm. Also, we're in a point right now where fewer bookstores are open <laughs> and functioning. Right. And people are, I think, really starting to like the like record unemployment numbers came out this morning. And people are starting to look at their, you know, disposable income and Mm. tighten their spending and books are probably one of the things that are going to be cut from a lot of household budgets so i like i i don't know if this is bad or not it could be bad it could also be almost nothing right it could be nothing also what percentage of like this but what how big of a cog is this particular yeah there's not a Um, sense of that but it's a big one and i guess the other thing if you're involved in this company somehow you might be especially disappointed to see this happening right now where if you're having supply problems from China, maybe you would have stood to improve market share or something else as a U.S. supplier and you're not so, you may, maybe seem like a more attractive option now than you did two years ago for mm-hmm. whatever reason. But since you're in turnaround, um, the ability to expand and access inexpensive debt to fund that expansion is tough. Um, I don't know... I can't imagine the printing business is a super high margin one because it can be relatively commoditized and, yeah. you know, you ship the book from China versus or Mexico or Canada or someplace else. Um, you can get there. Uh, they did do you know, $30 billion in revenue last year. And I once at the top of mind, like what the whole, I think the whole U.S. trade book sale market is like $7 billion. Mm. Um, but they could be printing all sorts of things, not yeah. just books. I, I don't know. Um, anyway, kind of interesting to see Quad Graphics, the other one. Um, no, no notes here about its financial uh, fortune. I, I guess one thing that happens in a slowly declining industry like print books, which it, it just is, um, 
is you get consolidation on the way down, like we saw with Baker and Taylor v. Ingram, right? Like with printers, you get fewer and fewer of these, which make it somewhat less stable and dynamic and less innovation and opportunity. So one of the reasons you hate to see an industry on the wane is that sometimes the margins and the viability of even the remaining value um, can be harder to, to capture and to continue operating with. At some level, it would have to be worth it for publishers to be integra- vertically integrated, like own your pub- own your printer. Like I've yeah. always wondered about that too. Like if you're Random House, why don't you own a bunch of printing shops? I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there's some reason, but um, if you do 60% of US trade print, like you are in the printing business, whether you like <laughs> it or not, you're just paying other people <laughs> to do it. Um, anyway, so we'll keep an eye on that. If you know more things about printing, the printing side of the the book business, feel free to shoot us an email, podcast at bookwrite.com. Fascinating um, part of it to see. Um, so in non-COVID news, um, a South Carolina librarian sued her former employer um, at the Five Forks branch of South Carolina because she got fired for... What, Rebecca? One of our favorite things that we hate to see people fired over. Drag Queen Story Hour. Drag Queen Story Hour. The library's in Simpsonville, South Carolina. Um, had an event, and she got canned and is suing, saying um, it didn't, uh, that she was, should be justly compensated for, oh, I'm sorry, his, his mm-hmm. wrongful termination. Um, I don't know a lot about anything. I don't know what the... Um, you know, uh, term, terminated with cause, you know, work for hire, Carolina, librarians, if there's a union there. But I'm sure glad to see um, this librarian throwing their monkey wrench yes. into the system to not go quietly into that bigoted night. Yeah, that the sort of the way it, it started was apparently a um, group called Mom's Liberal Happy Hour sent a Facebook invitation for Drag Queen Story Hour. 1,500 people RSVP that they were interested, but then a petition was generated opposing it, of course, that got 5,000 signatures. And the librarian who had facilitated the event with Mom's Liberal Happy Hour, his name is Jonathan Newton, um, says that he was wrongfully terminated because his supervisor, who had expressed opposition to the event, um, forced him out and bowed to political pressure from leaders in Greenville County. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Fight the system, Jonathan Newton. Fight the system. Um, the suit cites the ALA's code of ethics that libraries should make the facilities available to the public on an equitable basis, regardless of the beliefs of the affiliations of individuals or groups requesting their use. Now, I am biased to favor Drag Queen Square Hour, but that, mm-hmm. even on a plain text reading, that seems pretty defensible. Um, yeah. Uh, Newton, Jonathan Newton, was honored of the American Library Association's 2020 Gordon M. Conable Award, which honors a public library staff member a library trustee or a public library that has demonstrated a commitment to intellectual freedom and the library bill of rights. So I hope that Newton is, gets what he wants out of the suit. And also if he does or doesn't, and there's another library out there looking to hire someone who's really doing Mm -hmm. the thing the right way. um, Look up uh, Jonathan Newton. Yeah. May your efforts succeed, Mr. Newton. And, I hope that this suit is successful also because then perhaps it scares away other people from firing their librarians for doing mm-hmm. these very good events. I mean, there's been so much news about Drag Queen Story Hours that we sometimes lose the thread or we don't talk about every individual instance, and maybe we should. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know. 
Um, but there was legislation introduced in Missouri and Tennessee um, that could put librarians in prison for hosting drag queen story hour events at public libraries. It hasn't gotten anywhere, but just the existence of the idea of putting librarians in prisons for this <laughs> is so terrible and shocking and gross that I almost can't believe it, though I probably should. Yeah. And anyway, there I yeah, am. Yeah, it feels like it should be a headline from The Onion. Like, local policymaker wants to throw librarian in jail. Right. Yeah, it's, Have you it's, met a librarian? <laughs> yeah. Um. Anyway, I think if you're in the... Mar- and you, if, if, like, getting what you want involves putting librarians in jail, no matter what you're trying to do, just give... That should give you reason for pause. Librarians in jail, very hard to think of good reasons to do. Very, very difficult um, to think of reasons to do that. Um, the parental oversight of libraries bill was Missouri's proposal. Um, also, parents, you don't get to decide, I'm sorry, what libraries yeah. are. You don't. You can be a part of the marketplace of ideas. Um, you don't get, it doesn't, who cares? It's oversight of libraries is the government's job and we elect the city councils and other people to do that. You get to vote like everyone else, but go sit down. Sorry to say. No, I'm not. I don't know why I'm sorry to say that. Under the bill, I have to read this. Um, librarians who do not comply <laughs> with parental review board decisions could be found guilty of a misdemeanor, which carries a $500 fine and up to a year in prison. Oh my God. <laughs> See, I never understood these clauses. Like where you say, it's either an X fine or this amount of time in prison. Like, $500 in fine and a year in prison are not the same. <laughs> that is, I, the, the fine doesn't seem... I, know, I don't understand how these things work. Like, Why is it a, the fine 500 bucks, but up to a year in prison? Is like the $500 fine the minimum penalty and a year that's in prison how, is the maximum? That's how I read it. That claw, I don't know. I don't want to go touch this legislation and no. look at it like directly. Through, but um, I've always wondered about like it's a fine and a thing. I was like, geez... Could I could I pay twice as much and maybe not go to to the clink? Um, I don't know how that works. Um, there's only one co-sponsor for the Missouri bill. There's one co-sponsor in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. I think this is the kind of thing you do to try to get reelected from your very conservative jurisdiction, and it never goes anywhere. Yeah. But even that that this gets anyone like, any juice is, with anyone makes me insanely mad. right. Like this is your symbolic gesture is trying to find Ugh. ways to throw librarians in prison. I mean, oh, first God. of all, if you get more than one librarian in the same prison, those librarians will organize, and you're in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> it's like something out of um, Bitch Planet. The librarian wing of the prison, right? <laughs> Don't go there if you're not uh, welcome. Uh, now that's uh, a comic anyway. I would like to read. Yeah, imprisoned librarians and the riots they cause. Mm-hmm. Um. All right. Let's see. Where do you want to go next? Well, we've uh, got I some... guess. Yeah. Where you you choose? choose. Yeah, just wanna... a couple pieces of indie bookstore news. Really, yeah. um, every spring traditionally uh, there's indie bookstore day in April. It's usually sort of lined up as a spring version of like small business Saturday. Um, mm. It was supposed to be April 25th this year. And there are usually all sorts of special events. A lot of indie stores will have like authors come in to be a guest bookseller or do author events. And the ABA produces special ABA or publishers work together, I think, to produce like special limited edition items that you can only get if you're shopping in an independent bookstore on that day. Uh, like mm. one year there was a print from, you know, a cool comic and you could get that if you were in there, that kind of thing. Obviously, since a bunch of stores are closed, most of the bookstores are closed right now. 
Independent Bookstore Day has been rescheduled. It's going to happen on August 29th, but they didn't want to postpone the entire celebration. A lot of indies are doing a lot of things right now to try to stay alive and stay in business while their doors are closed. So it's going to be an online event that runs from April 19th to April 25th. And there are all kinds of ideas. This is a publisher's weekly piece that we're looking at. So ideas of ways that indie bookstores can engage their customer base and their community online rather than having them in the store. So if you're interested, you might just, you know, like call up your local indie or check out their Mm. Instagram and see if they're going to be participating if there's anything that that you can do there. But do not fear there will be an actual independent bookstore day in August, Mm. assuming that we're all allowed to go outside by then. (laughs) Which yeah. I'm holding on. Well, I mean, we didn't put this in the agenda, but I guess the big industry news this week is that um, BEA was yeah. officially uh, canned, not delayed, no, you know, um, going to try to move it to later. It had been moved from its historical late May date to late July. Um, then all the big five publishers pulled out, which we talked about, and now it's gone. Um don't know why at this point we we in, suspected internally that maybe there's some sort of insurance or some other kind of thing to try to mitigate what surely is a financial disaster for Reed Expo, which runs BEA and BookCon mm-hmm. too. I, I should say is also canceled. Um, a in a year of a lot of big deal firsts in the the industry side of books, this is a big deal first. Um, yeah, to happen. Um, a lot of hand-wringing over time about the utility and value of BEA and who should it's for and who should be doing it. Um, and like we said, this COVID-19 this is, can be a catalyst for things that are already in play. I do wonder um, if we're all back to being in crowded spaces next summer, which also just even now seems weird to say out loud. Like, does BEA come back to anything like its former self? Hard to know at this point. And maybe I'm just down on big groups in general, but... I feel like maybe this is the end of the beginning or the beginning of the end for BEA's future in a real yeah. way, in a real way. I've been feeling the same thing and thinking the same thing about it that like the delay from May to July just seemed like the thing that obviously had to happen and then as soon as yeah. it was announced that New York needed to use the Javits Center where the event is held as an ad hoc mm-hmm. hospital space and is using it for that it became the question then became like well how on earth do they think it's going to be like usable given what's happening in New York as a big event space in July and that people will be fine with that mm-hmm. <laughs> with being there? Um, it does seem like, you know, BEA has struggled for the last several years to try to reimagine itself multiple times into being something different that people would like more or mm. would think met its needs more. This past year, the marketing around it was like the reimagined BEA. And they had said they were just like tightening focus, going back to the origins and, paying a lot of attention to independent bookstores. But the joke on the floor last May was like, well, it's the same old BEA. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like It just felt the same. It didn't feel any different. To be fair, I don't know what they could do that would reimagine it in a meaningful way. Like it's publishers having booths with books to talk to people about them. Yeah. Um, but I think yeah. it was already on the decline and now you have the COVID related stuff of do people want to be, you know, packed into a conference center together, how long will it take us to, like, how long will it take us to think that's okay? And then how long will it take us as individuals to feel comfortable doing Mm. it? And will we want to do it by next spring? I think those are 
major factors that could impact this as well. I'm honestly at the point where like if there was an announcement in the fall that like, hey, guess what? We're just not doing BEA anymore. I would not be surprised. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised either. Um, Yeah, the fundamental structure of BEA is the fundamental structure of BEA. And you can say all you want about this thing that we've always done is now pitched at someone else. Well, that means the thing is still the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and they weren't changing enough of what the actual thing was to to pivot it towards something more lucrative or interesting or exciting or meaningful, frankly. I think there's a baseline utility for having humans together um, to talk about the thing. You know, there's a reason industry events uh, happen and conventions happen, um, but it's hard to know how to make it more exciting than you know, it's base level function. Um, This episode is sponsored by LavenderCon and Little District Books. LavenderCon, which is just the best name for a book festival, is a new book festival in Washington, D.C. It's presented by Little District Books, which is Washington, D.C.'s all-queer bookstore, both of whom are dedicated to celebrating LGBTQIA plus authors and stories. The festival will feature over 80 authors, including Terry J. Benton Walker, the author of The Blood Debts Duology, famed audiobook narrator Natalie Nottas with her debut romance novel called Gay the Prey Away, and Rashid Newson, author of My Government Means to Kill Me. And as I am looking at the website right now, breaking news, I saw a familiar face, and that is Book Riot senior contributor Susie Dumont. I'm so excited to see her name on this list, author of Queerly Beloved and Looking for a Sign. So you have so many great authors to discover at the festival. LavenderCon will feature 20 plus panels with topics for middle grade, young adult, and adult readers discussing romance, fantasy, horror, writing craft, and more. There will be a queer artist market, so you can go nab all of the great art and stickers and pins and handmade goods. The festival is happening June 29th and 30th in Washington, D.C., and you can either grab Saturday, Sunday, or two-day VIP tickets, which come with a few extra perks. Thank you once again to LavenderCon and Little District Books for sponsoring today's show. We hope you make your way over to the festival. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. From the best-selling author of The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle comes a new mystery. A fog has swept the planet, killing anyone it touched except for the island where villagers and scientists live in harmony. The villagers content to do what they're told by the scientists. But then one of the beloved scientists is found brutally stabbed to death, and they realize the security system around the island has malfunctioned and has wiped everyone's memories of exactly what happened the night before. So someone on the island is a murderer, and they don't even know it. Best-selling author Stuart Turton is a major voice in the mystery space, The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, and his second novel, The Devil and the Dark Water, have sold over 450,000 copies and become a TikTok phenomenon. He's received fantastic reviews from best-selling authors in major outlets. Make sure to check out his latest work, The Last Murder at the End of the World. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. And really smart, good idea of the week stuff, mm-hmm. also from the world of independent bookselling. R.J. Julia in Madison, Connecticut, like many independent bookstores, um, was trying to figure out how to continue on and not lay everybody off and what would happen. Um, the owner, Roxanne Cody, saw that local schools were providing lunches um, to kids because for a lot of kids, unfortunately, school is the one place that they have some caloric stability and availability and that a lot of local people were giving donations to help expand, subsidize, otherwise 
facilitate that. And she said, well, I bet people would be interested in maybe buying books for kids that otherwise couldn't get them, especially as they're not access to their local libraries and other places. Um, so said maybe one way to, to um, save a couple of birds with one stone <laughs> would be to offer a program in which people could buy books and have them donated to kids who could use them. And they did. Um, $150,000 worth of kids' books bought and donated on behalf of citizens and other backers. Um, kids are going to get uh, seven, 7,500 K-8 readers will receive a book a week for four weeks That's when their great. families go to pick up their lunches in New Haven and Bridgeport. Uh, Cody herself will select the titles. Um, Penguin Random House and Read to Grow are going to kick in some funds too. Um, what a wonderful idea, response, meeting of need um, with capacity to give. Well done, Roxanne Cody and yeah. RJ Julia. Really a beautiful idea, and I'm so happy to see that it was such a success there. I was so confused when the story came out because the headline is... RJ Julia saved staff by giving away a hundred and yeah, bad job, PW. That's not what this is. Books. They sold them. <laughs> yeah, and the yeah. whole. I just. I'm gonna. I guess complain about the presentation of the story for a moment because mm. it also is like the answer was to give books away to children who need them. Like yes, but no. Like RJ Julia successfully sold people a hundred and fifty thousand right. dollars worth of children's books, and those people have enabled them to you know mm-hmm. get a hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of children's books into the hands of kids who needs books, kids who yeah. need books, and this is all great news for everybody kids get books these kids who are on you know subsidized lunches and may have extra need in their homes are getting books as well and a bookstore that is a great like sort of historic and well-known independent bookstore yeah gets to stay right in business why do i know this is it i mean it's just one of those it's just one of those names like, those like new yeah. england bookstores yeah yeah rj julie is well known um and because they have good ideas like this yeah. but i think that this headline about like giving away one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in books really undersells how smart this idea is like they as you said met several groups needs by doing mm-hmm. this and were able to make one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in sales in the middle of a crisis that supported all, people all throughout their community, including their own employees and staff. Um, it's just a really good ringing of multiple bells at one time. And, you know, you've talked to Josh about this before. Mm-hmm. We talked about on the annotate we did about independent bookstores of like looking around the community and figuring out how they can be part of an ecosystem. Yep. Um, you know, that's specific and connected and plugged in. P- connected and plugged in mean the same thing. Um <laughs> to what's going on around them and be responsive to it. I mean, the, the, the people giving away something here are the people that have donated the money that, right. that ORJ Julia then used to buy the books. Um, so there is some, there is some largesse here, but it's, it's not on the part of the staff, which is should It doesn't need to be. No. They needed money. They weren't looking to give out money. They were looking to get money, and that's what they did, and that's great. They should do that. Yeah, facilitating getting $150,000 worth of books to kids yeah. is its own like great big good idea that yes. deserves headlines. It didn't need to be presented as they gave them away. Like it's a hundred percent fine that these were books that were sold. Yes, more than fine. <laughs> and frankly, I hope other bookstores borrow this idea. Yeah. Yes. Like why not? Like Powell should be doing this in Portland. I don't know why they're not. Um, I mean, maybe they haven't thought of it. Maybe they have other situations. But like, there's a right now. I think there's a lot of civil spirit and 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 fellow feeling. Um, mm-hmm. to try to help people and books and food for kids that would normally be in school, you know, outside of probably supporting frontline healthcare workers is next on the list of what people would be interested in doing. 
And I think to be a conduit which people could do that and feel good about in all parts of the transaction is a real opportunity and probably, you know, not sustainable for six months, but 150K will get some bookstores through several months worth of yeah. sales, I would think. And it's, it's meaningfully different from here's a GoFundMe for $150,000, yes. which yeah, I, the like, book culture, love, give me money so I can right, continue like, to mismanage you, my business. Yeah. Right. Like if you love your independent bookstore and you want to donate money just to keep them in business, like that's fine. Right. That's but fine. I think that it's a tough sell and buy a book that will go to a kid in need is a much less difficult sell and it benefits the store and people get to feel good about it. And I think you're totally right. I'm seeing a lot of it in my community as well, that like even if folks aren't spending as much money on things for themselves, spending money on things to like help a person out or help a group out or support like essential Mm -hmm. workers in some way is becoming something people do feel very good about. Like the some of the local restaurants that I've done takeout from have had like, and do you want to like tack on 20 bucks to yep. donate a meal to, you know, an ER doctor? And it's like, absolutely, I do. <laughs> I am a soft touch for that right now. A very soft touch for that kind of thing. Right I mean, now. I can't leave my house and spend money anywhere else. So you can have my $20 and feed those ER nurses. My Postmates tips are borderline irresponsible right now, but that's okay. <laughs> One could argue, though, that borderline irresponsible tips right now are responsible. Yeah, that's fair. Fair. Um, they're not sustainable, I no. guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> all right, Rebecca. Well, congratulations to all of you out there who made it through another week. I hope you're all doing, oh, okay, can be taking mm-hmm. care of yourself. Uh, my family has instituted 8 a.m. stretching. Oh, I like um, that. For us, where we stretch. And um, <laughs> is that what part you do the, during stretching time? <laughs> part of the entertainment value is um, one of us may be less flexible than others. <laughs> um, I'd say a couple standard deviation less <laughs> flexible than the population at large. And it's a sort of not inconsiderable amusement to other parts of the attendees to morning stretch. So I'm doing, <laughs> someone is doing their part to keep things better. Oh, that's nice. We are doing, I'm baking a lot. Um, Ah. And so we have instituted on many evenings family cake time, which is around 9 p.m. Oh, when I I want a piece of cake, I yell, it's family cake time. (laughs) And Bob comes into the Has your dog been habituated? I know Bob has been habituated. but (laughs) Bob has been been habituated. Jasper has not been habituated yet. Uh, And our friend who is uh, staying here with us, she appears as well. And we all eat cake. And it feels very nice. Jasper has been habituated to taking walks on the public golf course that's down the street from our house because it's closed. Ah. So everyone is just using the um, golf cart paths as for dog walking and good social distancing. Uh, And he discovered the other day that after it rains, the sand traps are giant swimming basically so he's learning mm -hmm, he's running around off a leash over there and he's learning how to take flying leaps into sand traps filled with water and just roll around so i'm you know bathing my dog a lot but he's having a lot of joy and watching a dog splash in a puddle is pretty good for the soul cake and cake and dogs could be worse ways of coping it's uh, it's true it's true i recommend it maybe we should add some family stretching (laughs) as a response i need to add some cake (laughs) <laughs> we no should have just quarantined that. together. <laughs> yeah, cakes. Cakes. All right, Rebecca, I'll talk to you next week. Have a good one.